0: All right, let's begin with uh, prayer. Father God, humbly before you we come. We open your word and we hope in you, hoping you to speak, hoping you to empower, hoping you to equip, hoping you to uh, give us eternal hope. Lord, I pray your words would wash over us and purify us as they're intended to do. That they would draw us closer to you, who you are, and what you're doing. That they would make us uh, more like Christ. Lord, that we would taste and see through these words that you're good. That we would value, these words, as sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, that we would value them as more precious than much fine gold, and so I pray that you would, by your spirit, direct our hearts that way, forgive us how we've failed you we have tarnished the image of Christ that is to display in our lives. We ask that you'd forgive us and that you would make us turn from that unrighteousness that we have found ourselves in. Help us in this word today. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to take two shots at Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 verses five through 10. Um, Steve will be here next week. He will be preaching something else, which is sure to bless you. <clears throat> and then I'll come back and we'll take another look at verses five through 10. But if you haven't noticed by now, I hope that you would begin to catch on. One of the major and main themes of these letters, one of the problems that the Thessalonians are facing is questions surrounding the second coming of Christ, right? And especially as born-again believers who are still enduring uh, suffering, um, we want to know when that happens. We want to know when we get out of this mess. I want to know when Jesus is going to destroy, especially our enemies, and especially uh, Satan and all his devices. And so there's much concern. There always has been. You need to take heart by the fact that there's always been concern surrounding this. And there's always been false teaching surrounding this. From day one. People know, the enemy knows that we are um, hopeful in Christ's return. He knows that that's where we place all of our hope and our faith as we endure. And so surely, if he can use that to stir up or distract or to discourage the church, he will. What's really sad is that sometimes he'll use the church to do that to the church. Or use supposed Bible teachers and preachers to do that. And it's always been my view and a lot of your view that too much attention and focus surrounding the things about the second coming of Christ that we can't know only serve to be a distraction from the confidence and the comfort we're supposed to derive from the second coming of Christ. That's what you're supposed to receive. That's what you're supposed to focus on. And if you find even that you have anxiety about the second coming of Christ, you need to investigate that. You need to investigate why. Is it in fact having to do with the judgment that's going to be spoken of here in verses 8 and 9? Or is it because you are really desiring to see many loved ones come to Christ? Or is it because there's more things on earth that you want to enjoy before He comes with a new heavens and a new earth? Why is that? Ever since His resurrection, we have been living in the last days. And there have been things that have taken place throughout history, throughout Uh, Places around the world where people thought that this was surely it it's going to happen now or that this is in fact the Antichrist our forefathers the Puritans they, they viewed the Pope as the Antichrist which I wouldn't say they're wrong but is there one or in fact the Bible says there's many so, we can get sidetracked in the, in the details, and we can get sidetracked in supposed signs, or, or we can let His sure coming be a bedrock for our faith and a confidence for us as we surely endure the suffering of this age. The suffering to come to each one of us. And so the theology here in verses 5 through 10 is not so much on the fact that Christ is coming again, that the judgment of God is coming alongside His vindication for the church. The focus is on how the Thessalonians are to continue to endure suffering and the hope that they can have in suffering. That's the focus. And he's going to use the coming of God's judgment to bring them comfort. (laughs) And you and I think, what is that? How do you get comfort through God's judgment? Well, if you are experiencing what the early church is experiencing, you are praying some of the Psalms that are calling for God's judgment to come upon evil, to come upon Satan, to come upon all these things that are seeking to end you or disrupt your faith. You are praying for that incessantly, constantly, without ceasing. And for us, in our context, we don't have much suffering. And I'm talking here specifically about suffering that is brought about by persecution, Suffering that is directly related to your faith in Jesus. We don't really understand what that is. We may have people that don't like us. We may have people that that don't agree as we stand for truth. We may have those experiences. We may be outcast at work or whatever or in our own families, which is surely painful. All those things are very real experiences of trials and suffering, but they but they are not what they are experiencing. They, they are wrestling with the reality of we are God's people, but we are being threatened with being extinguished as God's people here on earth. And can my faith endure that? And what I see in the scriptures, and what Paul seems to communicate to them in both of these letters Is that that is is the greatest trial, uh, the the greatest refining with fire that God's people can experience. It's a Christ-like suffering. It is being illuminated by the truth. It is speaking the truth. It is living the truth and yet being opposed to great efforts by those who would seek to extinguish the truth. And logically, it makes no sense. Why? If I stand for what God stands for, for who God is, if I, if I live and stand and speak according to the gospel, which is the good news that God will reconcile sinners to himself, if that's the message that I stand and live for, then why is there this persecution? And what Paul's going to say in verse 5 is that's evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That is an echoing of what he's going to later write in Romans 9, about God bearing with the vessels of wrath in patience in order to display more of his glory and righteous judgment to the vessels of righteousness. Which unveils to us further how he is using all things for good. Even the things that we wish would cease to exist. Even the things that even rightly we, cease, we pray that, uh, for them to cease to exist. As long as they remain, they are tools for our good. And in fact, if you carry that thought on through Romans 8, after verse 28, you find that those things are even used to display that in Jesus we're more than conquerors. And, and more than a conqueror, would be to not only defeat them, but to use them for good. Do you understand the power, the sovereignty that God displays over the universe? As evil exists, it doesn't um, so much distract us from the holiness and the goodness and the power of God over those things. It should actually further open us up to how vast and how magnificent and how powerful God is in order to take those things and make them work for good. That confounds the human mind, the human existence that seeks to preserve itself and its life and either uh, further um, gain comfort and, and security and all that sort of stuff we seek to do in the flesh. But God confounds the wisdom of this world. He takes those things that are foolish and that make no sense and displays how powerful and sovereign He remains over the world. And exhibit A, right, is the cross. The cross of Christ. That, to to Jesus' followers, even though He spoke to them, about it. it, made no sense to them. All they saw was heartache and destruction, and everything that they held dear uh, ripped away from them. They were left in utter confusion, in utter dismay at that. But then, three days later, everything was revealed for the purpose that God intended it for. Jesus knew that. That's why he went to the cross. He didn't have to go there. But he did because he was obedient to the will of the Father. You know, I was watching a documentary of the uh, Fundamentalist LDS. It's on Netflix. I don't really recommend you watch it. But uh, when their prophet died I think his name was Reuben Jeffs they were expecting him to get out of his coffin they were told and taught number one that the prophet would never die well as he became very old and (laughs) obviously died they thought, well, this can't be. So he's going he's gonna to get up. Well, and then they lowered him into the ground. And they were confused further still. They thought, well, this isn't making sense. And then weeks passed and months passed. And he still wasn't raised. And that is a false hope that they were given in something that God did not provide or will. That was a false sense of hope that proved to be false. And many of their eyes were opened after that. But what we have is not a false hope. But the reality of a tomb that is empty, according to centuries worth of promise fulfilled and met in the person of Jesus Christ on that third day. Using what was supposed opposition, what was opposition to the truth for ultimate good, which allowed Jesus in full knowledge of of the Father's will, which allowed Him to endure the shame of the cross, right? For the glory of God. That was his at the Father's right hand. He didn't have a baseless hope from some crazy, self-proclaimed prophet. He had an eternal relationship with the Father that proved not only to be (coughs) logical, even when it seemed illogical, not only proved to be true when it seemed untrue, but proved to be the sovereign will of a sovereign God who can do those things, work all things for good. And so we are called, like the Thessalonians, to that hope and that faith. And if we have the cross and if we have the resurrection and if we have our Bibles that display to us centuries worth of knowledge of of the sovereign will of God, then we are those who have and and should have and should grow in the faith that has been delivered to us in this God. Verse 5, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. This is coming off of verses 3 and 4, right, where Paul is boasting in, giving thanks for the increasing love that the brothers have for one another, despite the persecutions and afflictions that they're enduring. And so he says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And if you would stop and investigate words and phrases when you're reading your Bible, you'll begin to question, why does this bring evidence of righteous judgment What does our enduring suffering have to do with righteous judgment? And there's a couple thoughts on what that is, but I think the gist of it is summed up this way. The righteous judgment of God is revealed when the truth is opposed in such a way and those who hold to the truth remain steadfast when it's opposed. In other words, you can't deny the truth. If you know the truth, if you've seen the truth, if you believe the truth, then if someone were to come to you and ask you to deny it or tell you that it's wrong or false, what are you going to be able to do? If somebody comes to Lauren and says, Lauren, I don't think your name's Lauren. He's going to be really confused by why this conversation's happening in the first place, but... But he's not going to be able to deny that his name is Lauren. The evidence is there. It's on his birth certificate. We can go ask his dad. We know him that way. He couldn't lie about it. It's one of the evidences for the resurrection. The apostles who scattered, who didn't understand why Jesus had been killed and who weren't going to, stick around to be killed themselves, were now putting themselves out in public on behalf of that man who was killed because they saw the resurrected Christ. And because they saw the truth, they were able to deny it, despite the threat of death. And because they saw the truth, they lived to proclaim the truth and live in the truth. And the righteous judgment of God is revealed that He is He is in in... Keeping, keeping the Thessalonians enduring despite the opposition that they face. And there's promise for that opposition that they face. It could also be that they are experiencing a cleansing through the persecutions, through the suffering. That they are uh, being purified, refined through fire. And the Bible tells us such things. Tells us we'll be refined by fire. Jesus says, you know, if they did this to me, what do you think they'll do to you? Philippians chapter 1, 27 and 28, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The steadfastness in the faith is a revelation that the truth is true. It cannot be denied by the people who know the truth, and is being opposed by the people who don't like the truth, it's not that they don't know it's true, it's that they don't like it. So the fact that they are enduring, the fact that the faith is held up in them, is a sign that their destruction is sure, and the vindication of those who hold to the truth is sure. There's a clear dividing line when those things take place. 1 Peter 1.7, starting in verse 6, In this you rejoice, The evidence of his righteous judgment exists that we may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. The fact that their suffering is going to serve to show, to display, and to make them worthy of the kingdom of God. Because what did Jesus say? If you don't love me more than father or mother or son or daughter, you're not worthy of me. If Jesus is not held in your life as Lord, as precious Savior, as all your hope and faith and trust and stay, then you're not worthy of him. And if he is that in your life, then you will hold fast to him uh, as he holds fast to you. You will not deny him before men, even though they're seeking for you to deny him. You will hold fast to the truth. Therefore, you're worthy. You're displaying your worthy. And what suffering and persecution does on behalf of the faith for the church is purify her by leaving the remains of what is true. Just like you refine uh, gold with fire, a metal with fire, you take out the imperfections and you leave what's true and lasting and strong and able to stay. Why? Because we're strong and able to stay? No, but because God makes us worthy and we'll read about that when we get to verse 11. Because Paul's prayer for them as they endure is that God would make them worthy. How is He going to make them worthy? By, By finishing the work He started. In other words, by their increasing sanctification until it leads to glorification, which will display the vindication for the blood of the saints, who held fast and who were cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. And where did we read in Revelation 4? And 5, and especially in Revelation 5, where that lamb is, he is standing at the right hand of God. And he is receiving from him the deed or the will to exercise all authority over the universe, which is played out in the rest of the book of Revelation to pour out wrath on the enemies of God. So through that series of thought, we find that if we hold fast to Him, He will do what? Take care of all of our enemies, His enemies, all evil, all unrighteousness, all that which opposes the truth and light. And therefore, we are worthy of the kingdom of God because of Him, by faith in Him. Is your suffering to become worthy? Acts fourteen twenty two. Now, Paul had just been stoned and supposed dead, left for dead. (laughs) Then the disciples gather about him, and he gets up, and he enters the city, finds Barnabas, and they preach the gospel, some more, and they and it says in verse twenty one. In Acts 14, that they made many disciples. How'd they do this? Or they they returned to Lystra, Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How did Jesus enter? Jesus had a large following as long as he was healing people, right? But as long as he was opposing the teaching of the Pharisees, as long as he was opposing the the works of unrighteousness, he had death threats. He had opposition. And he had persecution that led to death, but that persecution was a tool in God's hand to bring about the salvation of the world. The satisfying of his wrath, which he would vindicate by the resurrection of Jesus. So we're, we're watching this all play out in a fourth circle. And when Paul is talking about suffering, he's talking about it in light of the eternal reality that is sure, but yet to come. And if you don't have that perspective in the midst of suffering, especially Persecutions for your faith, then you will not endure. Because then there is no hope in, in, in Christ of what He has won and what He will bring to you. What will be revealed in the last day. So, why would you endure if you have no hope? Why would you endure if you're not sure of those things? Now, here's vindication. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, Paul is going to pray and others are going to pray in scripture for the, the temporary sufferings to be relieved temporarily. It's right to do that. We shouldn't want people to suffer That's not what the Bible's proclaiming. That's not what I am proclaiming. But we do know that there is an eternal reality that is far greater than the sufferings we experience. And that if the relief doesn't come today, that doesn't mean it's not coming. In fact, it's promised to arrive at the day Jesus is revealed with his mighty angels. We're promised in this first letter, in chapter 4, that we will meet him as he arrives to enter in with him in victory. In other words, that complete and utter vindication, which will last for all eternity, is sure, is coming, but today might not be the day. So an endurance is called for in the church. And and when there is a, a foreign false gospel proclaimed that has no theology of suffering, you destroy any hope that people have as they will surely endure suffering. Therefore, you take away the good news. And... So the health and wealth and prosperity gospel proves to be satanic. Because it destroys the hope of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. And it puts the hope in the here and now, in the flesh, in the desires of the flesh. And gratifying those things. Which would also mean that the teachers and perpetrators of that said gospel would be serving Satan and not God. Those would be people like Joyce Meyer and Creflo Dollar and Joel Osteen and Jesse Duplantis and a host of others, Benny Hinn, you name it. But the biblical theology of hope and faith in Christ is most aptly seen in suffering. That you receive surety and confidence and glory and peace in the midst of suffering when there's a real faith in you. Therefore, you are left with a sure hope. And I I can't stop thinking about what we read uh, Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan in the 1600s, said when he was dying. He was amazed that he had the measure of faith in that hour that he had. God is a just God. He will punish sin. He will satisfy his wrath. He will not tolerate the continued existence of any evil. It has a destined end. There is relief coming those golden bowls of incense that are the prayers of the saints that we read about in the book of Revelation, those are prayers for relief. Those are prayers for rescue. Those are prayers for redemption. Those are groans with eager longing for the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. And they're precious to him. Because that's what he desires to do. He desires to answer those prayers in a way that is far more magnificent and glorious and final than you and I can comprehend. Do we have an eternal view in mind? Does that give you hope? Or do you just want tomorrow to be better? Judgment for the wicked. Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You can read about how that unfolds in Revelation 6 through 20. which basically unpacks how the Lord will do that, inflict vengeance. Notice that at the cross of Christ, while he is being questioned leading up to that, he makes known that he could call a legion of angels to his side. but he chooses not to. And notice what Jesus has with him when he comes to inflict vengeance. His mighty angels, which signifies what? His kingdom has fully come. Because he was speaking to them in his trial that his kingdom had not come yet. And it was the hour for him to suffer and die. But when he comes again, the kingdom of God is coming with vengeance and wrath and justice. And justice. And notice what the justice is for. Paul doesn't say it's implied because the people that don't know God or obey the gospel will do vile things, right? Like we once did. But notice how he, he couches it under that. They don't know God. There's no intimate relationship or knowledge of the being who is God. And since they don't know him, they don't obey him. Because to know God is to love God. And to love God is to obey him. Because we trust what he says is good. And what he says is good proves to be good. Every time. Would you say it's not good to love your enemies? Would you say it's not good to pray for those who persecute you? Would you say it's not good to care for widows and orphans? Would you say it's not good to give your life for someone else? These these are the things that that He commands, that He says. Would you say it's not good to love one another? Would you say it's not good to pray for one another? Would you say it's not good to encourage one another? These are the things that He commands us to do, to obey, and they prove to be good. And we know that, we trust that, because we love Him. And even when they don't bring immediate results, we know that He's going to cause all of that and all of that obedience to work for our good. The most serious offense is denying and disbelieving the gospel. You know, I'm struck when I read Judges, And when I read the Gospel of Matthew, there's a contrast here. Israel, in in the book of Judges, right, is going through this cycle of forgetting God, going after false gods, being judged by God, and then finally crying out to God, and then being rescued by God, and then doing it all over again. And that's how you have all these judges. God raises up these deliverers. They bring the people back, they rescue them from their persecutions. The people praise God once again, worship God once again, and then quickly, when everything's comfortable, they forget, they go back into their sin, and over and over and over again. And when I read Matthew, especially in Matthew 11, uh, verses 20 through 24, Jesus is communicating uh, to people in Israel the day look, it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you. Because if the works that I'm doing, the Messiah, if I did them in their midst, they would have repented in dust and ashes long ago. But you are further hardening your hearts. You are further denying the truth that is uh, in front of you. You are further disobeying the gospel by seeking to extinguish the gospel. The most serious offense is disbelief. God will save all manner of people, murderers, and thieves, and adulterers, and and all these sorts of people, God will redeem. But continued disbelief when the gospel has been made clear to you, made known to you, that is the most serious offense known in all of Scripture. And that's how Paul communicates it there in verse 8. How does he characterize the people that are going to have inf- uh, vengeance inflict on them? They don't know God and they don't obey the gospel. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I always tell people, especially when they're getting ready to go into one of those judgment houses, you know, those, those uh, displays um, that, that some churches put on where you walk through a, a, a play, a live action scene where People end up dying and some go to hell and some go to heaven. Then you walk into the hell scene and you're supposed to be scared uh, into salvation. Uh, we, you can't. You, you cannot display the, the utter torment of what hell would be. You cannot display how God is inflicting vengeance and eternal punishment and destruction on people Because you can't display the glory of His presence and might in heaven. You cannot do it. And so those scenes try to manipulate people with what they can do. Well, we can present hell as a very scary haunted house. No. God is most terrifying. And God is most glorious. Both things existing at the same time. And the judgment is being pushed away from one into the other because of disbelief. And it's just very amazing how Paul couches what eternal destruction is. Suffering away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. In other words, he's telling the Thessalonians, it's synonymous. He's coming in judgment, and at the same time, he's coming for you to enjoy his glory, to worship at his feet, to be redeemed as his people, to be redeemed even as co-heirs of what He's bringing with Him. A place prepared for you. And He's telling the Thessalonians, you believed. You believed this testimony. So therefore, hope in that. Have faith in that. Endure because of that. Maybe we don't Meditate on his second coming enough. And to meditate on his second coming, I'll give you a word of application, then I'll close. Um, Don't think about the details of it. Just think about the fact that that means two things. That means vengeance against all evil and redemption that will fulfill all your hope. not when or where or if the blood moons are showing up at the proper time and all. Just stop. Just, He's coming. Therefore, this is all going to matter. And my faith is going to be made this awesome reality when I see Him face to face. And I'm going to be, because of His graciousness and His mercy, be welcomed into this great celebration, this marriage supper and And all the good parts of of Revelation are going to be something that I get to see. Because He invited me. And He made me. So endure on behalf of His promise to glorify you and to be just against unrighteousness. And you will endure, you will be amazed at the faith that is yours in that hour. But practice now by seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness above all other things. And that will be granted to you. So I pray you'd meditate to that end and then we'll stand and sing together. (laughs)